0: To them, it was their efforts directly or through their students (coughs) or their students' students that deen was kept alive, or masajid, or makatib system that is, alhamdulillah, flourishing in this country, which many, many countries don't have the likeness of. This came from where? It came from the ulama of the Uban. And this kept Deen alive. We have mentioned this on many occasions, people who have been and seen firsthand in many South American countries, etc., where Arabs in the thousands had migrated, once upon a time, in the hundreds of thousands. And barely two, three generations later, their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, somewhere down the line, they didn't even remember anything about Deen or knew anything about Deen, apart from knowing that their grandfather was a Muslim. Many of them, their names are not even Muslim anymore. So Allah Ta'ala granted this great bounty to us, that by means of the efforts of the ulama of the urban, the Makati system was kept alive, was established, kept alive, which kept deen alive in our, the progenies as they moved on. And so many other aspects of deen were preserved. So therefore, this is a token of our, of our appreciation as well. And then this is a common story that people for every small thing want to pay tribute to somebody. Indeed we should, somebody has been a means of good for us, then we should pay tribute to him. But tribute is paid for somebody who did something maybe just in a purely worldly sense, but you want to pay tribute to them. What about those who brought deen to us, who preserved deen for us? and whose efforts and sacrifices became the means of perhaps, we can say, had it not been for their efforts and sacrifices, we don't know whether we would have had the Kalyama today. So what about paying tribute to these great personalities? So on that note, it is very important that we are even aware, unfortunately sometimes we don't even have any idea what is this legacy that has come down to us and where it started from, what is in the background. So this is something that inshallah will inspire us to keep this legacy alive because deer has come to us via this legacy. In any case, taking the next step into the topic itself, it's important to just go a little bit into history to understand the background of Dharlum Deoband and what happened thereafter. In India, when the English came and colonized the country, there's a whole history on itself. There isn't time to go into that part of it. But there were many efforts then made by the ulama of the time. as Shah Abdul Aziz rahmatullahi, was the first person, first great alim in his time, the son of Shah Waliullah rahmatullahi, who had passed the fatwa of jihad against the English that now it is necessary to free the country from the English rule because they are not just oppressing the people, they are even trying their utmost to eradicate Islam. Therefore, he passed this fatwa, and as a result, there were various things that happened which we don't have time to go into. But subsequently, then in 1857, there was another uprising, and the great luminaries of that time Haji Abdullah Saab Muhajir Makki, Sadat Ma'ar Rashid Ahmad Gangui, Sadat Ma'ar Qasim many other giants of the time they personally led the uprising against the British, and to some extent they had gained some success as well, but then eventually they were defeated on the battlefield. That's a very, very lengthy history, but when finally the English got the upper hand again, according to one report that they received from their own politician on the ground, he wrote a report to the viceroy and he said to him that if you want to rule over these people then there's two things you will have to do. You'll have to eradicate the Quran Sharif and you'll have to what he's how he termed it as that weed out the ulama. Now, because they had suffered some losses and so on and they had seen what a English army and his forces and whatever else and this uprising came and for a while they couldn't even get control over it. So they were now out to do whatever it could to keep everything under their control. So when this report was received and this Dr. William Yur had given them this report that if you want to rule over these people you'll have to do these two things. Basically eradicate Islam but this is how you're going to do it. So they first started off a campaign Well, both things happened almost simultaneously. One was they tried to destroy the Qur'an Sharif. 300,000 copies of the Qur'an Sharif they collected from wherever they could. Every masjid, every madrasa, every home, wherever they could lay their hands on. And they started burning up the copies of the Qur'an Sharif. Until somebody brought some huffas in front of them, some little children, when they realized what their plan is all about, and said to them, you can... Do what you wish, but you can't destroy the Qur'an Sharif. It's in the hearts of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. So in any case, this was something they realized will never work for them. But on the same note, they tried to act on the second advice as well. And in a span of about four years, after this 1857 uprising, from 1864 to 1867, three to four years, they had martyred 200,000 people. Out of this 200,000 people, 51,000 were ulama ikram. 51,000 ulama ikram in a, one city of Delhi alone. Now we are talking about the whole length and breadth of India, which is many times the size of our country. Just in the city of Delhi alone, 500 ulama were martyred. There were some gallows that were set up in the Jami Masjid of Delhi and various other places. Gallows were set up in the courtyard of the Masjid. And per day, up to 100 ulama were being hanged and made shaheed in the gallows that were set up in the courtyards of masjids. In any case, when this situation took place, it's obvious that what the repercussions of this would be. And this is a very, very painful part of the history of India, of the Muslims in India. But in any case, the ulama ikram of that time, they sat down, And especially those who had been in the forefront of this jihad of that time, which was known as the silken cloth movement, Reshvi Rumal, they sat down to discuss that what is the way of preserving Islam and the Muslims. Because that was the primary thing. The condition of Islam and the Muslims at that time, the Muslims were now downtrodden completely. The English had brought in missionaries by the, not hundreds, thousands, and they spread them throughout India And they would challenge people in debates Now the simple folk of India People who were not even really learned themselves And they would now Because they were so vulnerable at this moment To try and confuse them further And to try and take their Iman away And this was Happening on the one side Then the Hindus, the Pandits were now at full go That we will convert every person we can Into Hinduism And all these things were happening At the same time and then this more than 51,000 ulama were martyred, the masajid, the madaris, the structures of deen that were being run by these people. Imagine 51,000 people out of the system in a matter of just a couple of years. So all these structures were beginning to collapse. So these akabir the of the time sat down to discuss what is the way forward. That This is not something we can just plan for tomorrow, this is a long term plan. And what has to be done in to order to preserve Islam and the Muslims. This is where this then settled in their hearts. From the inspiration from Allah wa Ta'ala, that this madrasa should be established, this Dal should be established. And this is where this decision was taken. And this madrasa in Dal Ulum, which became known as Dalum Uloom Dioban. Dioban is a little town or was a little town at one time. It is a little bit of a bigger town now. It's not even a very major city of any sort. But this is where this madrasa was established and where things commenced. How was this madrasa established when this decision was taken? This madrasa started off. It started off with one ustad, with one student. And it started off where? Under a pomegranate tree. Under a pomegranate tree, one ustad, and one student. And if somebody has to now today do a research of this, that this is the, where the seed was planted. Then from there, as the graduates of Darlum Dioban moved throughout the world and established Madaris and Makatib, if one has to do the sums, it will run into the hundreds of thousands of, not students, institutions. Some years back, about 8 10 years back, there was some gathering of the Madaris alone, meaning the Daruluns, we you are not know even talking about the Maktabs in Pakistan. There was some issue on a government level, there were some problems, the government was trying to do some things to try and clamp down on the Madaris because of outside forces' pressure. So, there was a conference held, and in that conference, every madrasa was told you may only send two delegates. Two delegates per madrasa, not more than two. There was a gathering of more than 10,000 people. Just two, gathering, two delegates per madrasa only. Now this is just one country, Pakistan. Now you go throughout the world, and you see the fruit of this, way it started, but this is the point, that one ustad, one student, and under a pomegranate tree, there was no budget, that they had drawn up some budget first. That now we will, we have such a big plan to make. So now let's first work out what will be the budget. And then where are we going to start collecting the funds from? No, the work started first. The work started first, and then as the needs came about, then according to the needs, the effort was made, Allah will open the doors. So in any case, this is where it started from. And this is the one ustad and the one student that became the ...starting point of this great institution that would then flourish into this, into this tree that would then bear fruit... ...and that fruit will go through every corner of the world. If one considers, just before taking it a little bit further... ...that in the Indian, in Indo-Pak subcontinent... ...that is the entire subcontinent that at that time was the undivided India... Nowadays it's India, Pakistan, Bangladesh... What a massive population this is. Then from there throughout the world, in many, many parts of the world, where Deen went through primarily three ways. Primarily Deen either was revived or kept alive through one of three branches of the efforts of Deen. And often a combination of all, because it's neither any one in uh, just isolation. If you look at the work of the Madaris, this is where it started off. The Makatib, this is where it started off, in this format that we know it. And throughout the world, mashallah, in many, many places, this became the means of stemming the tide of irtidad, reneging, in countries like Malawi, not far off from us, which was once upon a time 95% Muslim. Not long ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, when some count was taken, it was about 45%. From 95% to 45%. One of the key factors that was found, there was no basic talim. Mashallah, ulama of South Africa, from the what called Islamic Institute, the MIyaz, there's a group of ulama from Pretoria and Lodium, various others, Mahagura Gura from Durban. More than 15 years ago, this effort started, 15-20 years ago, to start establishing makatib. Over time, there are several thousand makatib that have been established. we just talk about one country, Malawi. Again this starts off, the seed was planted there, this is coming back from there. That whole tide that was going from 95% to 45%, Allah knows best, in the, in the last 20 years where it would have gone. Alhamdulillah it has started turning the other way around. This Makatib effort has become the means of stemming the tide where this was wholesale, Just Islam was just dropping and people were just becoming Christians and going whatever, whichever direction it has turned the tide. In Bangladesh, a Muslim country, the missionaries were having a field day. There was no Makatib system. This started off again by many ulama of South Africa in that far-flung country. And it has started turning the tide the other way. Now, this is just a little inkling that deen spread to many places via the Madaris and Makatib. Where this came from, the system of Madaris and Makati from Darlum Dioban. It came via the work of Dawat and Tabligh, The work of Dawat and Tabligh who revived it, Hazrat Mawla Muhammad Ilyas Khandalwi, Rahmatullahi. This again traces itself back to Hazrat Gangoyi, Hazrat Nanoti Rahmatullahi, the founders of Darlum Deoband. It went through the effort of Isla and Tazkiyah, the method of, as we understand it, the khanka system. This too, in many, many parts of the world, this is how it stayed alive. Again, this is traced to these great Akabir of the urban, so this is not just something that happened and just one madrasa that started off somewhere. The whole mission of this madrasa was to keep Islam alive and to preserve deen and to preserve and to replace the loss that took place in the the losses that took place in 1857 in India, where there's 51,000 ulama were made shaheed. So this is where the starting happened. Now this is just a very, very brief background to this establishing. Then the need came to actually put up some structures. So some discussion took place that now we need to set up the structure, start building something. This madhya started under this pomegranate tree. One Ustad and one student. But then slowly the numbers started growing. There was need for some facilities, some accommodation. So now the need came to build something. Now many a times these kind of incidents which I am about to mention... Often taken as fairy tales, but if somebody decides to regard it as a fairy tale, what can we really do to convince him? It's up to him. But these are realities. In the Hadith Sharif, Nabi Salaam says, Man Ra'ani filmanami faqadra'ani. Fa that the one who sees me in a dream, he has indeed seen me. Shaitan cannot impersonate me. So, in any case, what I was mentioning is that when they decided that we should now mark out the foundations of this place and start building something. So they marked out some foundations on that land and some person, contractor, person who was going to do the construction, he was called and he was told he would start the work. So any case, the next day or a few days later, he started with the work. And after the work started, again, those who were responsible came to see what was going on. And they see he dug the trenches for the foundation far beyond the markings that they had marked. They asked him that, what are you doing? Why are you not following the guidelines that were given to you? He responded and said that, the night before I started digging the trenches, I was blessed with the ziyarat of Rasulullah in the dream. And he pointed out to me that, look, these markings are too small. This would not suffice. You make it much bigger. And he drew the markings in my dream. And when I woke up the next morning and I came on site, I could see the markings still there. And therefore I dug it according to those markings that were shown to me in the dream. Now this is some unseen assistance from Allah Ta-Barak wa ta'ala that this is how this foundation got laid and this is where this comments from. Now this is again a very very detailed part. What we are trying to cover in the short time is just to get a glimpse, a very 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 brief glimpse of what the, uh, where this started off from and who were the people behind this. And that is a real part to take the lesson from. So, in the rest of the time that we have, we're going to be now discussing the people that were involved in this. Because that will give us some idea of what became the means of this flourishing in the way it did. When something happens, often what is only seen is the external side of things. Outwardly, what happened, what got done, or something what achieved. But it is... What was behind it, that actually made it happen. We often see the finishings of a building, but there was a lot of work in the foundation. And often that foundation takes a long while. But that's all hidden, it's underground, you can't see it. You only see the building. You see the finishings, you see the beautiful lights, you see sometimes some chandeliers, but it's all resting on that foundation. Take that foundation away, nothing will stand. Now what was the foundation? And that is what actually caused this entire mission to flourish the way it did. In order to understand this very briefly again, and we are not going to necessarily go in any sequence, just at random we are going to be taking some personalities, and we can only take just barely a handful, less than a handful, to get some understanding of what went into the foundation. What kind of people were involved in it. And really this is the thing, and this is the lesson to take. In these discussions, this is what we get: that in any dini effort, and for that matter, any effort, any community work, the thing that makes it really flourish is if it is accepted in the sight of Allah Taala. If it gains acceptance in the court of Allah Taala, and what makes it gain acceptance in the court of Allah Taala? That is the Sifat. And qualities that are put into that, that are in the people that are doing it, what they adopt within themselves, how they invest themselves in those qualities, and that is then what brings out this fruit and profit. So, just to understand this very, very briefly in the light of some of the personalities that were involved in this, found in in establishing this Dalum who were the founding members of it, and who were the spiritual guides of it, and we'll get an idea of what was the, that this was such a deep and such a strong foundation, therefore it's not amazing that this building has gone so high. Among the people that were the founders of Dalum Dioban, one was Mr. ma Qasim Nanuti, so, who was he? So just to get a little bit of, again we don't have time to go into a historical background when he was born and so on and so forth. Just some incidents in his life and this is what we are going to do with all the personalities. Just one or two or three incidents in each life just to get a glimpse of what they were all about. To just understand one aspect of him, that he was among the people that founded the room, he drafted out the constitution. And in the constitution of this Darlom, now this is something that's starting off, at that time who could have imagined where this would reach one day. But he's drafting out this constitution. One of the things he put in the constitution was that there will never be any government funding that will ever be accepted in this madrasa. Otherwise, this is something which is seen as an easy way to move forward. And the government was very ready at that time to just fund anything obvious reasons. Because once they can start funding things, they have not just one hand in it, both hands in it. And he foresaw this. He said there won't be one cent of government funding in this. Then this was obviously something on his very high level of tawakkul. He stated that there shouldn't even be any fixed income of this madrasa. Meaning some form of fixed income. Because as soon as there's some fixed income, it's going to be difficult to maintain the gaze towards Allah Ta'ala. Then you're going to be looking to the fixed income. That now this income is coming in from certain investments or whatever the case is. So there shouldn't be any such fixed income. This is the constitution of this first madrasa of this nature. This is the kind of person he was that when he got married, he got married into a very wealthy family. He was a very, very simple person. And He got married in a very wealthy family, so his wife came to his home now and this is the first night of marriage and she's come completely bedecked in a whole lot of jewellery because she came from a very wealthy family. So the father went out of his way and a lot of very expensive jewellery gave her and she sent off with. So any case now he sat her down, this is the first night of marriage and this is the conversation. He says to her that, look, one of the most important things is for a marriage to run very smoothly is that there must be compatibility between the spouses. Now, part of the compatibility is that both should be on the, roughly the same standard. Now, one of the things that can be is now that I must become wealthy like you. That's a very difficult thing now. For me, I'm going to become wealthy like you. The other thing is you become like me. And he gave her a lot of encouragement and to the extent that on that first night, she removed all that jewellery and handed it over to him. You dispense with this as you wish. A good part of it, he then contributed towards Darul of Joban. At that time, the Khilafa that was in a great amount of difficulty, which was in Turkey at that time, the seat of it was in Turkey, was almost in the verge of collapse. And they were trying to still keep this going. And they would need a lot of assistance. A good amount of this he deposited and contributed to that. In any case, some days passed. Then she went back to her parents' home. After spending a while with the, in her new home, she went back to her parents. When she came home, her father is seeing that all the jewelry again, she's come without anything. He asked her what happened. She related the whole incident. So, in any case, the father was a very wealthy person. Again, before sending her off now, going back to her husband's house, he re bought everything. She came back with all this jewelry again. Again, when he saw her coming back with all this jewellery, he started the same bayan again. That, look, we have to be compatible. And either I become rich like you, or you become like me. For me to become like you is going to be a very difficult task. Rather, you become like me. Again, after the whole discussion, she again removed all that jewellery and handed it to him. And said, you do as you wish. The father got to know again, this is the second time this has happened. He realized this will carry on. So eventually he decided, he built a house ...for his daughter and said, fine, you can use this now. But this is the kind of person he was. This is the kind of reliance he had... ...on Allah wa ta'ala. And this is the... This is just one aspect. Just one more incident, we'll talk about him. That there was some jalsa once in... ...some place, in Dioban perhaps it was. There was a very big crowd. And as the program finished off... So now he left from that area of the jalsa... ...to start moving towards the masjid. It was Zohar time. And now there was this huge crowd people are now just pronging around him to meet him, to make Mustafa with him, and he's trying to move, but now this crowd is all around and he's trying to make his way, in the process, by the time he got to the masjid, it was not far away, it was just a short distance away, but because of this crowd, by the time he got there, the salah had commenced. Any case, after the salah, people are seeing whoever was now with him, his attendants, etc., Seeing him sitting, sitting quietly, but they can see a mountain of grief on him. First, nobody had the courage to ask him anything. Then, somebody came and said, oh, Something is wrong, problem, in some pain. So, after persisting, he sighed very deeply. And he said, After 22 years today, I missed my Takbir Ula. After 22 years today, I missed my Takbir Ullah. We miss our jamaat. Do we feel any grief on that? Allah forbid our salah becomes qaza sometimes. Do we feel anything about it? After 22 years today, I missed my takbir Allah. This was the type of person he was. And this is the kind of people that were the, who were the founders of this. Together with him was Hazrat Ma'ul Rashid Ahmad Gangui, another great giant of his time. Both of them had studied together in their own time. They were studying in Delhi, in a Madrasa at that time. And they studied in a manner where they had no no support, financial support of any sort. Parents were very poor. They were studying purely on Tawakkul. At the end of the day, they would go to the vegetable markets. They were busy studying the whole day. At the end of the day, they would go to the vegetable market. Vegetable market was just like an informal market. On some open piece of land, people would come, all the farmers would come. They would sell the vegetables and then there were a lot of things now like those dried leaves and some bits and pieces which were not nobody's going to buy. At the end of the day, they would just discard it there and go away. So those things that were discarded for anybody to do what they want with it. At the end of the day, they would come and pick up these leaves, these cabbage leaves or whatever other things. Wash that clean, boil that in water, drink that water and maybe cook those leaves sometimes. They survived for a good amount of time on these leaves and these thrown away pieces of vegetables. And this is how they acquired the knowledge of deen under these kind of circumstances. So, both these were the very great personalities. Hazrat Gangui, he is also among those very great people who was among the founders of Darulun Dioban and a person of a very high caliber. Just to understand one thing about him, once he is Sheikh hazrat Ali Ibn Dadla, Muhajir Makki, wrote to him that for a long time I haven't heard from you in terms of your spiritual condition. So explain what is your spiritual condition. So in any case, he says, after he, on this instruction he wrote back, to say that what can I really say, I have nothing. But in any case, with the benefit of your teachings, etc., I've achieved with the fadal of Allah, three things. What are the three things? I've only achieved three things. If we achieve one fraction of these three things, also our work will get done. The first thing he mentioned was that whether somebody praises me or criticises me, it doesn't have any effect on me. This only can come when a person has a very high level of ikhlas. That he's only concerned about, is Allah ta'ala pleased with me? Am I doing the right thing? As long as I'm doing the right thing, then anybody criticises me, it doesn't bother me. And if somebody praises also, it doesn't affect no matter what people may say Positively or negatively It has no effect on the heart It can only be from a person Who has a very high level of ikhlas But he just expressed it in these words Then he said <laughs> In any benefit or any harm Alhamdulillah My gaze doesn't go to ghairullah I don't look at anybody As a source of benefit for me Or anybody as a source of harm for me I look only towards Allah If any benefit will come to me It will come from Allah alone If there's going to be any harm, it's by the the decree of Allah Ta'ala alone. People are just merely, will do whatever is the decree of Allah Ta'ala. I don't pay attention to the people at all, in this regard. And the third thing he mentioned, he said, Shari'at tabi'at bangay. Alhamdulillah, the Shari'at has become my first nature. Shari'at has become my first nature is what? When a person is hungry, nobody has to tell him you must eat. That hunger takes him to food. Likewise, when Shariat becomes a person's tabiat, then at the time of Salah, it's like a hungry person going towards food. Nobody has to tell him about it. If a person sees some snake or scorpion, nobody has to tell him to run. That fear is there. When Shariat becomes the tabiat and nature of a person, sin, he runs from sin like he runs from a snake and scorpion. This was the kind of person he was imprisoned by the British on a charge of treason, that he was trying to overthrow the government, etc., whatever it is. So in any case, they imprisoned him. In prison, he made that prison into a madrasa. And that prison also, he started teaching people. So in any case, six months, he remained in those very harsh conditions. Six months passed. They couldn't really stick the charges onto him in any way. So finally, the release order was given. That fine, there's no charges really that can stand against him. It was all just whatever it was. But any case, now the charges have been dropped and he must be released. So now when the release instruction came, so the news came immediately, but there's a process. It won't happen in one day. It might take a couple of days before finally he is released from prison. Whatever paperwork, etc. will happen in the process. So any case, as soon as this release order took place and this became news... So this news came in the prison as well, via whatever channels, it reached the prison also. One prisoner, who was there as the a long term prisoner, a Muslim person, he, whatever he did in his early life, so he got imprisoned, so he started crying. So, Alay asked him that what are you crying for? So he said that well, when you came into prison and now you started teaching, I also for the first time in my life started learning to recite Quran Sharif. And now I've gone this far. But I'm far from completing still. And now you're going to be released. There's nobody else to teach me here. And I'm a long-term prisoner. Whether my life will still be... I will probably die in prison, I don't know. So It means that this is where I stop now. My Quran Sharif will never get completed. So, rahmatullah alayhi, said to him, that look, you be rest assured. When he saw his condition and his talab and his yearning. To learn the Quran Sharif, he told him, you be rest assured, that till your Quran Sharif is not complete, I am not leaving. And he remained for whatever period of time it took, several months thereafter. Because he might have then given him extra time, extra attention. He remained under those harsh conditions in prison, for no other reason but to teach one person Quran Sharif. This was the kind of ikhlas these people had, this was the kind of heart they had. This was the passion to serve deen that they possessed. And really this is what Diyoban was all about. The meaning of Diyoban, one is the meaning in terms of the name of the place. But Open became synonymous to that very very firm belief in Tawheed, the oneness of Allah wa Ta'ala. All bid'at and innovations in deen were dispelled. And people who were deep down in Jahalat. And in ignorance, by means of the mission that started off in Dioban. To a large extent, this was cleared from many, many parts of the world. And together with that was the ittiba of the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu And, among the many things, one was this passion for deen. And this passion for serving deen. Which we see from this incident of Uzzang Gangoyi There are many, many other incidents about him. But just to round off on one aspect what he wrote in his wasiyat the wasiyat and the parting advice that he wrote for his family and his associates etc one aspect that he wrote in there that we will round off on that he said apne zoja, apne aulaad, aur sab ko, karta that my wife, my children and all my friends and associates I very, in a very emphasized manner, I'm making this wasiyah to them that ittibai sunnat ku bahod zaruri jankar, shara ke muafiq amal kare. That regard the following of the sunnah of Rasulullah as absolutely necessary and act according to the shariat at all times. And then he replied, said further, thori mukhalifat ko bhi dushman apna jane. That the slightest deviation from the sunnah ...regard this as a severe enemy against you. That this deviation is your enemy. He's going to harm you. He's going to terribly destroy many things in you. This was the wasiyat that he had. This was the kind of person... ...that Hazrat Gangoyi Tulale was. Again, there are thick kitabs, thick biographies written... ...and the biographer writes that we cannot even... ...scratch the surface of this person's life. A very thick biography. That person writes that this whole thick book hasn't even scratched the surface of this personality's life. we in this time, in a few minutes, we are going to be able to do any, any justice to such a great personality. any case, to move on, these were the people who founded this Uloom, and then the person who was the first student of this Uloom, who then went on to become the first Hadith of the Uloom. After he graduated, at that time, meaning he learned from Gangoyer Nanuti Rahmatul Alai, he wasn't the first Sheikhul Hadis, but he went on to become the al Hadis of the Darul and he became the father, so to say, of the graduates of Darul Um thereafter. Because thereafter, it was just a short period while he studied, and then after his graduation, in a very short time, he became the Sheikhul Hadis. So then everybody was his students, or became the students of his students. So in that sense, he became the father of Dar- Darul Um Dioban. As a Sheikhul Hind. Just to understand that, as we mentioned earlier, all the very, very great branches of Deen and the work that spread throughout the world via these branches of Deen, it was either by the means of Dawat and Tabligh Hazrat Mahmud Ilyas he was a student of Hazrat Sheikh Al-Hind. If it was the field of islah and Tarbiyat, and the entire Khanka system that really took root and then flourished, Hazrat Ma'a Shabari Tanwi rahmatullahi He was a student of Hazrat Sheikh Ul Hind Rahmatullah The aspect of the Muslim, their political, uh, looking after their political side of things and preserving Islam and Muslims on the field, Hazrat Ma'a Hussain Ahmad Maddi Rahmatullah the student of Hazrat Sheikh Ul Hind Rahmatullah And again, together with them, many, many others. Who were the giants of the time. He was the teacher of all of them. Can we imagine the personality? Again, barely to get a glimpse in the mirror of some incidents in his life. Because this is what speaks about what the person was all about. He too was imprisoned in Malta, which was an island off the coast of Italy. Under very harsh conditions, under torturous conditions. It was severely cold in this place and they were kept under very difficult circumstances. What was one of the things in prison? Every Jumu'ah, every Friday, now for Jumu'ah to be valid, there are certain preconditions. One of the preconditions for Jumu'ah to be valid in a place is that there must be free access to the place. A prison, there is no free access. So there is no Jumu'ah in a prison a Jum'ah day or Friday will come, there will be Zuhar Salah performed. So now there was no Jummah there. But Juma has various fadail virtues, a lot of things to be gained by fulfilling those various adabs and sunnats of the day of Jum'ah. Nabi Islam encouraged many of these amal. And on fulfilling of many of these amal, there are great rewards that have been promised. Taking a ghusl, putting on clean clothes, putting on ether and whatever other adab and sunnats of Jum'ah. On the day of Jumu'ah, he would start off early, which is one of the things of Jumu'ah. Unfortunately, nowadays, that ihtimam and importance for the day of Jumu'ah is also leaving us. We leave it for the last moment. Azan is started now. We are trying to get ready for, the day, for Jumu'ah. This should never be the case. We should be planning well in advance. Something beyond our control completely is a different matter. So in any case, every Friday, he would take a bath, put on his clean clothes again and then apply itar and whatever other adab of Jummah that he could fulfill, then he would walk because the Qur'an Sharif says, Fasaw ila zikrillah, Then hasten towards the remembrance of Allah Ta'ala. So now he would walk. He would walk how far? From where he is, that prison cell, we might know a description, say like a two by two cell, he would walk up to the door of the cell. So now how many steps that would be? Maybe four or five steps. And he would come to the door and he stops. He says, Ya Allah, I did what was in my capacity. This much to fulfill of the adab of Jum'a and to go towards Jum'ah, this was in my capacity. Now to go beyond this is not in my capacity. Then he would come and back to his spot and perform his Zohar Salah. But Friday in and Friday out, this would be his mamul. Now, one is a person who is prison. He is away. I cannot make it for Jum'ah. But that importance and that respect and azmat for Jumu'ah is so deep in his heart. And that respect for this symbol of Islam is so deep in his heart, that though he knows he won't make it, but it cannot allow him to just just forsake all these adab of Jumu'ah. He did what he could, comes to the prison door, to the door of that cell, and he says, Allah, I did what I could. This beyond this is beyond me. Now, this was the kind of zeal that he had, when he was imprisoned in this prison of Malta, once there was a rumor, there was a rumor that there is a sentence of, that they had been sentenced to be hanged. As Sheikh Al-Hindr Rahmatullah and the others that were imprisoned with him, they were at the forefront of this effort to oust the British from India, so on this basis they were imprisoned, they were caught. And there is a whole detail behind this as well And they were imprisoned So now there were several of them This news came that they are going to be hanged So the other satis that were there The other companions that were there They suddenly see us in very deep thoughts So they thought that this news has perhaps affected him in some way So they came around him and they said to him This news has come, we are aware of it But after all, this is what we were aspiring for. We were aspiring to give our lives for Allah. So that time has finally come. So when he realized that what they are saying, he again sighed and he said, That is not my concern. That we are aspiring for. My concern is that now that time has come. Apparently, the time has come that we have to meet Allah now. When we meet Allah, will Allah accept whatever was done? Well, Allah say, yes, this is all acceptable to me, it was done for me alone. After all these sacrifices that were done, and out of that level of ikhlas that was there, but that concern and that constant reflection, we do the smallest of things, when we say we, I refer to myself, that we do the smallest of things, and we are already feeling like we did a great thing, we forget about reflecting upon ourselves, we forget to check, what is my intention? Have I really done it for Allah alone? Did some other intention and other motive not corrupt that Ikhlas here yeah, so much sacrifice was given and yet this is the position. Just to understand the kind of sacrifice that was made. Again this is just one incident. When sheik ul Al-Hind passed away so now he passed away in Dioban so those who were giving ghusl to him his immediate family, people, etc. So now they noticed on his back now, as they giving usal to him, that there are deep wounds all over his back, deep cuts. And this was really strange, and, and not, not one or two, many of them. So nobody seemed to know anything about it, always baffled, because nobody had heard about anything, him suffering such a wound any time. Hussain Ahmad Maddin Rahmatul alay, who had voluntarily given himself up to be in prison with the Sheikh, Ra- Sheikh Al-Hind Rahmatul alay, when he was arrested in Makkah Mukarramah because the person who was the governor of Makkah at that time he fell into the trap of the British and hand in hand with them he betrayed the Ulama of the Oban at that time and he had the Sheikhul Al-Hind arrested Hazrat Maddin, Rahmatul alay, heard about this and he came and handed himself a voluntary arrest they asked him, what do you want to do in prison? I want to make the khidmat of my ustad any case he was in the entire time of imprisonment with him when he passed away when Hazrat sheik Al-Hin passed away he was not present in Nioban al Sheikh Hind that sent him at that time prior to his passing away few days passed before his demise sent him specifically all the way to Calcutta to go and establish the Makatib there some people were interested in starting this off he said you go there he said you are so sick I want to be at your side he said that is more important you go there he sent him to go do that job Madni Rahmatullahi was away nobody else they knew what is this all about any case when he returned from Calcutta after getting the news of uh, Sheikh Al-Hin Rahmatullahi's demise when he came they asked him that this is what we noticed when we were giving Hosal to him, you know anything about this? so when they asked him he started crying and he said this was a secret I could not disclose in his lifetime because he had forbidden me to disclose it now that he's passed on now I can talk about it. He says that every night, every day, every day or for many, many days this happened while we were imprisoned in Malta. Because he was the leader of the Muslims of the time in, and in, in this effort of oust, trying to oust the British. So he was made the target of the most severe torture. He says the British guards, the, the guards of the prison in Malta would come and take him in the morning. And they would lash him. Sometimes they would put this burning embers and they would make him sleep on top of it. And repeatedly they would tell him that you say one thing, you make one statement. You make one statement that I no more am opposing the British, we will release you. He said, but I'm not prepared to do this. And he says he used to be put through this torture, this severe lashing, to be lying on this burning coal. And this would actually leave these deep wounds and then at night he could not even sleep because of the severe wounds. And then the next day the same situation again. He says there were several times that we spoke to him and said to him that can there not be some way to now just say something to appease these people. We don't really mean it. We will say something which they might take the meaning of that fine we have dropped off the opposition. Meanwhile we know what we are meaning. We are meaning something else. He says, no, I'm not prepared to do that. Any case, this torture carried on. As Madin Ali says, one day we could not tolerate this anymore. And he says, we all as a group, we went and we very, very, uh, in a very beseeching manner. We said to him, please have mercy on us now. We can't see this anymore. Please just make some tawil, just make some kind of, say something in an interpreted, interpreted way, so that you get freed from the situation. When he saw this whole group coming around him in this manner to try and persuade him, says he suddenly became upset. And we saw the signs of some anger on his face. And as Mandir Ahmad says, because I was the one that was leading this whole discussion now, he looked at me and he said, Hussein Ahmad, jaante nahi Bilal ka ruhani beta hu. said, you don't know that I am the spiritual son of Hazrat Bilal if he was dragged on the hot sands of Makkah and he didn't stop saying Ahad, why should I stop saying the truth because of this oppression? Don't you know that I am the spiritual son of Hadad Khubeyb who was lashed and people who take turns to lash him? Don't you know that I am the spiritual son of Hadad Sumeya who was the first martyr of Islam? Don't you know that I am the spiritual son ...of Imam Abu Hanifa whose, ...whose corpse came out of prison... ...after having been imprisoned and lashed... ...because he didn't want to conform to the oppressive rulers of the time. Don't you know that I am the spiritual son... ...of Imam Ahmad bin Hammal ...who used to be lashed in such a way... ...because he did not want to side with the batil... ...and he was lashed by the rulers of the time. He says such a lashing he got... ...and he was lashed so mercilessly that if an elephant had to be lashed in that way, it won't tolerate it, it won't behave. And he continued taking the name of one personality after the other, of the great personalities of time. And this, he carried on saying, he said, until we realized that there is no way that he is going to even say anything to appease these people in order to make them release him. This was the kind of person he was, and this was the kind of uh, sacrifices he made, so that Deen could stay alive. It is said about him that in the month of Ramadan after the Tarawih Salah was performed then the whole night he would spend the whole night in listening to the Quran Sharif being recited. The whole night the Hufaz would take turns. One person would perform Salah two Rakats, whatever few Paras he would recite then he would finish off. Another Hafiz would take over and he alone would be the one that he is making iqtida. He would stand the whole night in this nawafil. The huffaz would take turns. Each one would spend that 45 minutes, one hour, then the next would come. He would stand the whole night in, th- in that nawafil. And as a result of standing the whole night till sehri time, many a times his feet would swell. When he would see his feet swelling, he would actually become visibly happy. That alhamdulillah, this is not a sunnah that is in anybody's in his choice, Allah Ta'ala gave me that resemblance today that Nabi Sallallahu used to stand for such lengthy rakaats Hatta Until his feet used to swell. Alhamdulillah, today Allah Ta'ala made my feet swell also. He used to be visibly happy over his feet swelling because this gave him resemblance that his feet swelled because of standing in salah. And it resembled him with Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi This was the type of person that, this, that he was and... He was the first student of Dallum Dioban, who then became the Sheikh al-Hadis of the Madrasa, And for a long time, he was the p- person who became the ustad of the personality such as Allama Kashmiri Rahmatullahi. Allama Kashmiri Rahmatullahi, he was a walking library. Again, Dallum Dioban produced these kind of personalities. A walking library, a person who Allah Ta'ala had blessed with a photographic memory. He once went to the library in Egypt, and he read one manuscript there. The manuscript, which is a book on fiqh, Nurul Ida, which is taught in almost every ulum. And he read this manuscript, and he was very, very, very uh, taken aback by this, in what a wonderful way, what a simple manner, as an elementary book of fiqh. In Arabic, this whole book is there, in more than a hundred pages. So he wanted to take it along, to then uh, have it copied, and then use it in the madaris, but they didn't allow him to take it out. It's a manuscript. He had to leave. He didn't have time there. He came back to Dioban and he wrote the whole book out of memory. Once while delivering a lesson of hadith, in the Alam Dioban, he then became the Sheikh al-Hadith in his time. While delivering a lesson of hadith, he suddenly started quoting Fathul qadir which is a commentary of Hidayah, which is a very, very major book of fiqh. And this is a commentary. Very huge, voluminous commentary. And he began reading the Arabic text out of memory, like how a person reads Surah Fatiha. And he read out like almost more than a page. And the students were sitting dumbstruck that he's reading like a person reads Surah Fatiha. A person, when he studies the books, he studies intently, he studies the texts. Because the commentaries are very deep and very voluminous. That he refers to for the further explanation. And now he's reading from a commentary out of memory and more than a page. And now he sees and he also noticed that how they're looking at him in total awe. Then he stopped and said, What do you think I read this last night? He says twenty years ago when I had gone for some work to a certain place, that was the first time that I managed to see this kitab. Because there were very few copies of this particular book at that time available. So I had to be there for a couple of days for some medical, medical reason. So in that time, I read up those four volumes of Fatul Qadir. That which I read at that time, I'm referring to you now. I'm relating to you now. This was a kind of memory Allah Ta'ala blessed him with. And he was a walking library. People would ask him something and he would be able to give the page number, the line on which it is. So he became the stars of such personalities. But nevertheless, there's some other points just to discuss about the ulama of the oven. Allah Ta'ala blessed them with numerous qualities. One of the aspects was, this love for Allah, wa ta'ala, this deep ishq, this talukul Allah Allah, this was something, all these things were common among all these akawir. And on this point, this is something, a very important point to bear in mind, when we talk about the ulama of Dioban in this manner, this in no way means that there was nobody else on earth possessing these qualities. There were many great people, many great ulama in place, various places, the ulama in Africa, the ulama in various Arab lands, alhamdulillah, summa alhamdulillah and we are indebted to all these great personalities for their sacrifices for Deen. This in no way negates anybody's contribution towards the efforts of Deen. But, having said that, because Deen came to us, these were our spiritual fathers. So we have to, when a person, he'll talk about his grandfather, he'll talk about his great-grandfather, and he'll respect the other person's father and great-grandfather also, but he is naturally attached closer to his own father, he is naturally attached to his own grandfather, to his own great-grandfather. This is a natural attachment. So he will talk more about them. But that doesn't mean in any way that he doesn't recognize somebody else's grandfather or somebody else's great-grandfather, what he did for Deen. So these were our spiritual fathers. And we are deeply, as we mentioned right at the beginning, especially the structures of Islam that are existing in our province and a good part of South Africa and many parts of the world. We owe this to the ulama of the Ubal. That they kept Islam alive there, and they exported it throughout the world. Then. So, in any case, coming to this aspect that we are discussing about, that this ishq of Allah, this deep love for Allah, and this was really flowing in their veins like blood, how the blood flows in the veins of a person, and this demonstrated itself in all the various ways in how they they fulfil the commands of Allah Taala. Not just the faraiz and wajibat, how they lived deen. And what was their zeal for ibadat? Again, there's so much of this. What was their zeal for the serving of deen? Their passion to uplift deen. Just to take some glimpses, time is already running out. Among the very great personalities of the Dalim was the Muhammad Khalil Ahmad Saharampuri, Rahmatullahi. He was the direct student of Hazrat Gangui, Rahmatullahi. And his Khalifa as well. His daughter became very ill. I'm just taking again one very slight glimpse in his life. His daughter became very ill. And in that time, he was also attending, to, she became extremely ill, elderly daughter, grown-up daughter. And he was attending to her as well, the other family members were present. One night it became obvious to him, and she herself sensed it. That this is my last night, I'm not going to live beyond this night. Now the type of father that he was, she also recognized what a great, he was a great hadith. He wrote a commentary of Abu Dawood Sharif, Bazlul Majhud, in six very big volumes in Arabic. And a masterpiece, a commentary of Hadith Sharif. And apart from that, so many other works of Hadith. So in any case, <coughs> she said to him that, look, I can sense it, today is my last night. Today, I don't think I'm going to live beyond tonight. Please I am requesting that you just remain in my presence so that in this last night of my life I can keep every now and again looking towards you, looking at you and Allah knows best if my life goes. then Meaning this was perhaps some kind of strength she was taking that seeing such a great personality of deen in front of her this might inshallah become a means of her staying steadfast also. Any case He heard this out, he told her don't worry, you'll be be fine, no problem. He gave her some comfort and then as it came towards half the night, this was the time that he would normally perform his tahajjud salah and in his tahajjud salah he would decide three paras every night. Now the time for his tahajjud came, this is a condition of his daughter. He himself is sensing it, that this is the time, it's not far off, the minutes are ticking now. But the zeal for his ibadat, he told his wife, you remain sitting right here now. You don't move from here. And he commenced with his salah. He would perform two, two rakats. Two rakats he performs and he'll inquire how is he, what's happening, is she okay? Again they would give him some kind of indication, no she's still fine. Meaning she's around still basically. Start of another two rakats. Again, he'll ask what's happening, no she's fine. He carried on in this manner. ...his three paras and his tahajjud got completed... ...and he came and sat there... ...and she breathed her last. She breathed her last. Now this is his daughter. And his wife is seated there. That's her mother. He turns to his wife and says... ...that look, you had to be seated here all this while... ...but there's still a little bit of time left for tahajjud... ...you can still make your two rakats." This zeal for ibadat... ...in this kind of condition can only be from somebody whose very veins are flowing with the love of Allah. With that zeal and passion for deen. The time is already ticking away like life is ticking away also. Allah give us the topic of taking some inspiration from these great lives. I'll just finish off on one incident about, we spoke about this passion and the zeal for the service of deen. There's so many other things here, but nevertheless... Just, just before that, one little incident of one of the great, Akabir of Diobhan, Prophet Muhammad Abdul Rahman, Kamil Puri, Rahmatullah There are many incidents of this nature, but one incident we're taking of this nature, he was teaching and he used to receive 36 rupees. In that time, 36 rupees was his salary. But he was a person of very high expertise, a real expert, expert in all the sciences of deen. He received an offer to come and teach in another place, And he was offered 950 rupees. Now was 36 rupees. He was offered 950 rupees. He said to them, Alhamdulillah, this 36 rupees is more than enough for me. And I am here to serve deen. So sorry, I am not coming there. This is again just making me digress. If you could, just one or two minutes more. We are talking about the ulama of Dioban. And since there was a discussion not long ago, he was also a graduate, direct graduate of Dalum Dioban, my late brother, which the people of Stanga, mashallah, are very, very familiar with. He also grew up in this town, and Alhamdulillah, everybody was familiar with him here. When he was based in Moiriva, after he had come back from Dalum Dioban, and this was the first place that he had taken up a post to teach, and he was earning at that time 90 rands. Ninety Rands was his salary a month. And while he was based here and I still have a vague idea of that house because I spent some time there as a child with my mother nur, My father had gone in Jamaat at that time and we spent some time there. So I remember very vaguely I might have been three, four years old, that wooden iron house and that frost outside, etc., and that cold. And at that time he was earning ninety five Rands there. And he received an offer from the Kirk Street Masjid in Johannesburg to come and take on the post of the Imam there at a salary of 750 rands. From 90 rands to 750 rands. The people of the town somehow got to know about it, that this is the offer that came, they came running to find out what's going to be the decision. He said to them that, look, based on this money, I'm never going to go anywhere. He told him, if ever i leave Moira it might be because of the cold, but not because of the money. And he said, look, this whole area, that whole northern Natal area, at that time, from Newcastle, was Mauna Sema Sahib, coming down from there, all the way, almost up to Peter Marysburg, there was no Alim. He said, if I'm going to leave from here, it'll be a very big vacuum here, I'm not going anywhere. So this was that same legacy, the legacy of the Ulama of the oven. I'll just finish up on one, one incident of this passion for service of deen. There was one great personality of the Ulama of the Oban, Rasul rahmatullah and he was at the forefront of dispelling the batil Aqaid, the Qadianis, and so on. And he used to be invited to various places suddenly. That now these Qadianis have come to our town and they are confusing the people. Please come immediately and please come and advise people what is the reality of things. So he would immediately then move to wherever it is. His son, who's child, daughter or son, was a young child at that time, suddenly became very ill. And while uh, he's there, that he's attending to the child, is around and it's becoming obvious the child is getting more and more ill. One person comes from some faraway village and he sees his Qadhyanis have come and they are busy corrupting the people's minds and people are actually becoming Murtad you better come now. So now this is the condition of his child. He packs up on little bag or whatever his things are in a short moment in a few minutes and he says to everybody at home please whatever is necessary to be done you take care of him. I have to go. He leaves the house. He barely reaches with this person to the station or bus station or train station and the message comes from home your son or daughter whoever it was your child has passed away. He says look it's necessary to take care of the, jan- the janaza, etc. But mashallah, there are many people present for that. There are people becoming muridah here. That if I don't go there right now, I don't know how many others might lose the iman. Here, there are many people to take care of the necessary here. Please, you will take care of the necessary. And he went on. These were the kind of sacrifices that were made. This was a kind of. These were the kind of personalities behind these, This kind of institutions. This. Seed that was planted... Was planted with this kind of ikhlas... This kind of tawakkul... This kind of love for Allah wa ta'ala... The type of ittibai sunnat... Which we didn't get time to talk about at all... And the examples of their ittibai sunnat... And what love they had for Rasulullah sallallahu sallam, And to what extent and how closely... They would follow in his footsteps... And the innumerable other... Aspects of their lives... Allah tawala gives at some other time... Maybe somebody else would continue with it... The purpose nevertheless was one to highlight or become aware of these things, but to take the inspiration from these Mubarak lives and in some way follow in their footsteps. Inshallah, Allah ta'ala will bless us as well. May Allah, wa ta'ala give us a tawfeeq. And the last Wa the Lord is the Allahumma alhamdu kulluhu wa la shukru kulluhu. Allahumma la nuhsi thanan alayk anta kama asnayta ala nafsik. Jazallahu anna nabiyyana muhammadan sallallahu alayhi wa Sallam bima huwa اللهم افتح لنا بالخير واختمن لنا بالخير وجعل واقب أمورنا بالخير بيديك الخير إنك على كل شيء قدير اللهم إننا نسألك من خير ما سألك من نبيك وحبيبك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ونعوذ بك من شر مستعذك منه نبيك وحبيبك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم أنت المستعان وعليك البلاغ ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم وصلى الله تعالى على خير فلقه سيدنا محمد وآله وصحبه اجمعين الحمد لله